Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. Before we get into this week's podcast and the actual material for the class, I have a few things that I wanted to go through. First, the podcast is now available on iTunes. So if you take a look at the announcement on Canvas or go to iTunes and search for either The Populist or for me, Kevin O'Hare, it should pop up. Let me know if there are issues with that. The next thing is that I want to thank nearly the one-third of the class that has responded to the initial discussion, uh, giving uh, their classmates and myself some information about themselves, and it's interesting, and it's nice for me to see you know, the different backgrounds people come from. We've got students from other countries, students from other parts of our country, various ages, um, various reasons people are taking the class. I mean, I'm not naive enough to believe that everybody just loves this material and that's why they're taking it. So for some people, it meets a requirement. For other people, it is something that's super important. You know, no judgment. I understand that uh, people have different reasons for taking the class. Um, the next thing I want to emphasize is the need to stay on top of your work. Um, the overwhelming majority of you have not taken part in the discussion for class section one yet. There's only been eight posts total, and some of them are even by the same person. So don't let these lag behind too far. Um, and try and stay on top of those if you can. Um, also, as of Sunday around noon, only 12 people have taken the week one quiz. Because this is such a reading-heavy class, it's really in your interest to stay on top of the readings and the quizzes. So remember, the first five quizzes are bunched together and are due by the end of week five. Okay, so if you wait until then to do it, it's going to be very difficult to get all of the reading done and all of the quizzes done by that deadline. Okay, also take advantage of the discussion board for the weekly podcast to, to clear anything up if it was um, you know, not entirely clear or if you had questions. And also answer your students or your students, your fellow students, um, if you think you know the answer to a question that that they're having. I think there was only one person that, that posted and I was kind of waiting just to see if anybody would respond. I mean, those aren't graded. It's not like you're going to, not like you're going to get points taken off or, um, you know, in any way hurt your grade if you post and it's not the right thing. Uh, but it's another way to, to interact with your fellow students. Um, Another thing is to take advantage of my office hours. They are Mondays and Wednesdays from noon to two. And obviously, if that doesn't work or if you're not here in Eugene or on campus, let me know and we can work something out and go from there. Um, outside of that, make sure that we're staying on top of the readings, staying on top of listening to the podcast, taking lots of notes and, you know, putting into, into this class what, what you hope to get out of it. All right. So much of it falls on you because it is an online class. But if there's any way I can help, uh, be sure to send me an email or stop by office hours and uh, I'd be happy to talk to you and listen to you. And this is the first time I'm teaching this class and it's also the first time I'm teaching an online class. So if there are certain things that you're seeing uh, that could potentially help the class out or make it run a little smoother, I'm definitely open to suggestions. And there's actually a thing in week three, like feedback, that's completely anonymous. And I want your honest opinions on that. Um, because I'm trying to improve the class. I understand it's not going to be perfect the first time I teach it. And the suggestions you give me, I will take serious. So without further ado, here is episode two of The Populist. Today I've got a guest on the podcast. It is Dr. Shana Meehan. She is a recently graduated PhD from the University of Oregon. She is an adjunct assistant professor at Portland State. And she is the author of the dissertation, Building Stable Governments and Post-Ethnic Civil War Societies, the Importance of Community Policing, in which nationalism had a primary role and that is what she is here to talk to us about today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So 
before we get into stuff dealing with your uh, dissertation, um, what? How do we define identity in general? Like, what? How can we think of that? Because national identity is something a little bit different. But how do we how do we talk about identity in general? So, you know, everybody has a different way of talking about identity. We all have sort of this intrinsic idea of what it is. Um, you know, it's special traits that sort of define who we are. Um, but when we want to sort of give it an academic definition, we, we tend to stumble over it a little bit. Um, so the traits themselves don't become your identity necessarily. It's what the uh those distinctions are in comparison to other people okay so you know my identity as a woman doesn't mean anything unless i can identify what i'm not you know i am not a man but i am a woman and so that portion of my identity is always so any portion of my identity is always in comparison to other people you know i'm i'm very tall well what does tall mean unless we can compare it to something else. I'm six feet tall. In the U.S., that's incredibly tall for a woman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by, identity tends to be sort of that collection of traits that set us apart from other people, but also connect us to other people, right? So, again, being a woman, it separates me from men, but it also connects me to all other people who identify as a woman. Right. Um, so it is, it is this both... Uh, unique identifier and something that gives me community at the same time. Okay. And we can hold multiple of these at the same time. Exactly. I am a tall woman. I am of Irish descent. There are all sorts of ways that we can, you know, uh, define ourselves. And we tend to pick those traits that are important to us. And that's what we call our identity. The, The things that set us apart and connect us to the people that we care about. Okay, good. Um, so then moving on to national identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get into exactly what national identity is, maybe we should talk about what a nation is. Yes. And how do we define nation? So, you know, nations are essentially large groups of people that have a common link, usually a common ancestry, common language, common history. Um And importantly, in political science, a nation is a group that shares all those characteristics and wants some form of political autonomy. Um, So that means that they want to have control over themselves in a distinct uh, geographical space, the ability to rule themselves separate from other groups. Okay, so in, I mean, like the Germans Mm -hmm. are... A nation national state. And, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that we have a tendency to sort of gloss over in political science, that the nation and the state can, are sometimes are the same, but can also be two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Germany, that's a great example of a nation that also has its own state. Um, but as a, you know, I study Northern Ireland, and there are two distinct nations that are a part of Northern Ireland, the those that identify themselves as Irish and those that identify themselves as of British descent or just Northern Irish. And so the Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland, the the territory that they would like to claim is the whole of Ireland. They would like to be with North, uh, the rest of the Republic of Ireland, um, which is a different form. So in that situation, the nation is not the state. It is a part of, it's related, but it is not the state itself. Okay. So. Yeah, and that's a great example with Northern Ireland, and that the nation isn't always the state, but mm-hmm. a lot of what we see is nation states in general. Or would you I'd not s- go that far? I, I wouldn't even go that far. So um, the concept of the nation state really sort of came after World War II, or promoting the nation state. So again, you know, we look at Germany, we look at France, um, as Spain, as really good examples of generally where the nation lines up with the state. But Mm -hmm. even within those examples, there are other nationalities that exist um, that don't necessarily line up with the state. Um, And with the end of World War II also came the end of a lot of colonialism. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, the United Nations developed a 
theory of nationalism that basically said people have the right to choose how to rule themselves. And so a lot of former colonies became nation states, theoretically, mm-hmm. when they broke away from their colonial uh, masters, as, you, as it were. So you could argue that um, you know, some South American countries that gained their independence after World War II became nation states, though to an extent that also ignores the internal divisions that exist within those countries. Right, because the, the lines drawn in South mm-hmm. America or Africa aren't based along national lines. They are yes. arbitrarily drawn states from colonial powers. Exactly. Okay. So then how, how as political scientists and as students in this class, should we, we think about nationalism and defining what nationalism is? So in its simplest terms, nationalism is sort of, is the desire of a group of people that call themselves a nation. So that same common history, common language, common bond, to have control over a specific political territory. And sort of that dedication to that power or attaining that power is nationalism. Okay. So then if in certain places, like you mentioned Spain earlier, Mm -hmm. and immediately I thought Catalonia. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here we have Spain that's supposed to be a nation, but within it there's a smaller group Catalonia that mm-hmm. recently voted that no, they don't. They don't want to be a part of Spain anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, do we? Can we look at Catalonia as a nation in so, that context? Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a that's another great way to separate in in our minds the the idea of state from a nation. The Catalonian people would be, by our definition, a nation. They seek political control over their own territory. They're a group with a shared history, a shared language, a shared common bond. Um, And so they are nationalists within the state of Spain, and they do not consider themselves Spanish, many of them. Okay. So then when it comes to studying nationalism, or I guess the next logical question to ask is, where does this come from? (laughs) You know, is it something from way in the past and, you know, Mm -hmm. that we can't avoid, or is it something more modern? So, I mean, political scientists disagree, as we tend to on everything, sure. um, about where nationalism comes from or where sort of uh, pride in our nationalism comes from. And so there's sort of three general approaches. Um, there's this idea of primordialism that, like, our bonds, our social bonds are ingrained in us from the earliest, you know, human experience. So Mm -hmm. you could call, you know, attachment to family nationalism in super, super early humans, right? That, that it's so inherent in us, the need to connect to one another and to find ways to not just connect, but also separate from others. What makes us special, us and our people. Um, So that's sort of that primordialist approach says we've always been, you know, nationalists. We've always been looking for ways to separate ourselves and mm-hmm. be unique. Um, and then there's sort of a group of, pe- of people who we would call like modernists and essentially say that the modern state, um, you know, after uh, the development of Europe, uh, especially uh, in the industrial age, sort of created nationalism. Um, and this sort of links to things like uh, economies. Okay. As we started, you know, trading um, and the world became more interconnected, it behooved us to, sorry, it's a great word, behooved <laughs> us uh, to, to promote our own selves. And so in order to do that, like merchants, say, in Germany would band together and say, oh, Germans should buy, mer- you know, German merchandise and should not, tr- you know, buy English Goods, because those English people are different than us, and Germans have pride in German things, right? And you know this sounds very familiar because you know in the U.S. we're like we should all buy American because we have pride in the U.S. And so there's a group of political scientists who say that that is where nationalism comes from. It comes from this idea that uh, the economy forced us to find ways to protect ourselves and protect our monies and promote ourselves. And then there's a sort of a third group they're called we would call them perennialist and they fall somewhere in between these these other two groups and they say you know it's not quite 
inherent in our very nature to have nationalist ties, um, in part because they, you know, they will say it took a long time for modern society to develop. So it's really hard to say, like, how could, you know, tribal roaming tribes of nomads have had nationalism if they didn't even know there were other people out there to care about or, you know, be nationalist against. Um, but also say that to say it's just tied to that economic move, it's just tied to, you know, once the world became more integrated is too loose. And so they say, yeah, there's it's sort of this in between. It's not quite a natural phenomenon, but it's also not quite as new. Not quite entirely, as, as Benedict Anderson would say, like yes. imagined and created in the modern era. Exactly. It has exactly. some ties. So to clarify um, for the students, mm-hmm. there's um, this week they read an excerpt from Benedict Anderson okay. kind of describing why he thinks, mm-hmm. you know, the state and modernity helped usher in nationalism, Mm -hmm. but they also read Anthony Smith, who is more of a primordialist, and he really created these three categories. But, you know, taking these different approaches gives us different ways to look at... Yes, exactly. Look at and study the the emergence of nationalism Mm -hmm. and and how it came to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we've got these ways of kind of thinking about how we study nationalism. Mm -hmm. But then within that, so if we look at modern states Mm -hmm. and modern nations, there's really two types of nationalism that we, that we see. It's civic and Mm -hmm. ethnic. Mm -hmm. Can you help us untangle these, these terms? So, uh, you know, the, con- the concept of civic nationalism is probably easiest for students in the U.S. to understand, right? That we have a, a common cause that we come together under, um, you know, we voluntarily join in this association with one another and promote the common good or the common good as determined by voting, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, different ways that we can, de- there are different ways we can determine what the common good is or the common will is, but that we agree that that's what we want to promote. Um, and that's sort of this idea of civic nationalism. And civic nationalism includes everyone. It's not exclusive to the rich or the poor or, you know, men or women or particular ethnic groups or language groups. It's everybody that exists within this civic association we have, like in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, ethnic nationalism is very dependent on your membership to the in-group, whatever the in-group is. And so usually when um, when we talk about ethnic nationalism, we're talking about an in-group as determined, uh, similar to a nation uh, with uh, common language, common history. Um, and then there's just sort of the, with ethnicity, there is this intangible uh, membership with a group that comes from uh, both acknowledgement from the group that you are a part of the group and a personal affinity that you are a part of the group. So uh, the, f- the frustration for a lot of people when we talk about ethnicity and ethnic nationalism is it's hard to look at a person and, and tell them what they are. They have to both claim the ethnicity and be claimed by the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's all based on whether you're that ethnicity Or not as to whether you're in the group or not. Different from civic nationalism, which it's everybody in a given territory. Exactly. Um, Okay. And then, so, I mean, we're given these two terms. Mm -hmm. And kind of in our political science-y way of describing them, it's these are ideal types. Right. Okay. And to review (laughs) an ideal type, which we, we hit on last week, an ideal type is simply that if this existed in the real world, here is the perfect form that it would take. It's right. not going to be that way. It just is a you know an analytical tool that we can use to to make these categorizations and these distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, but given these are two ideal types, what are some of the issues that come up when trying to analyze nationalisms by just using these two lenses? Um, so. There are a lot of problems, but, you know, some of the big problems that exist are that, um, you know, both within ethnic nationalist movements and civic nationalist movements, we tend to see tinges of both. Um, So 
you know, again, using the United States as an example, since so many of you, I'm assuming, are uh, from the United States, or at least students in the United States, uh, we can easily point to both times in our history and modern examples of groups that tend to be excluded from our civic nationalism. So throughout the U.S.'s history, you know, nationalism it originally included landed, you know, white men who had property. Mm-hmm. They were who were considered American citizens. And the ones that could vote. And the ones who could vote. Right. Exactly. Because citizenship is often tied to your ability to, you know, participate. Um, and then, you know, obviously we had issues with uh, slavery and people of color not being included. Um, groups of immigrants as they came in who were accepted as workers but not as members of the nation for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so we can e- we can easily see that throughout our own history, our own civic nationalism has been a little bit wobbly and has at times had tinges of some level of ethnic nationalism by excluding other ethnicities and assuming the ethnicity of the primary group. You know, similarly, a lot of ethnic nationalisms, there may be a primary ethnic group, there may be this idea of the will of the particular group, Um, But they are often, if not expressly inclusive of other people, are welcoming to groups that are willing to accept that will, the will of the the ethnic group, right? So um, in Northern Ireland, again, my favorite example, we we talk a lot about the two primary groups, but there is a not insignificant minority of people who do not fit either the Irish or British category. There are a number of, you know, Chinese immigrants. There are a number of Polish immigrants. There are a number of, um, you know, Sikhs and people of many different religions and ethnic backgrounds that live in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. that are considered by to be a part of the nation, even though they do not fit a particular, you know, the the ethnic identity of any either of the two primary groups. And so, you know. Going back to this idea of ideal types, it's helpful for us to be able to say, like, okay, in the perfect situation, perfect ethnic nationalism looks like X, but in the real world, everything's a little messier. So it's just important to acknowledge that to ourselves, that we can't, it's very difficult to point to an idea of a perfect ethnic nationalism or a perfect civic nationalism. Right, and even before we were talking, you (laughs) you were talking about... uh, even Nazi Germany yeah. wasn't it wasn't exclusively ethnic nationalism. There were little yes. tinges of and civic c- nationalism. In, yeah, and certainly they appealed to the concept of ethnic nationalism right. many times in many places, but they were far more inclusive of you know it was not exclusive to the Aryan race as it was as they had defined it, um, and so yes, it's probably the most common and easiest example of as close to a pure ethnic nationalism as we can have. But the reality is, is that there were tinges of civic nationalism included in that as well. Mm -hmm. So then what is the relationship? So we, we see nationalism get thrown around a lot Mm -hmm. in, uh, in the news and the media and things. Mm -hmm. How should we think about nationalism and its relationship to patriotism? And what's the difference between those? So, you know, this is a, another difficult concept to, to get on, but patriotism is sort of, uh, is what some might term civic nationalism, honestly, is, okay. is the idea of the, uh, the faith in the institutions of, of the government. So, you know, in the U.S., it's like belief in the Constitution could be considered patriotism, mm-hmm. or, and patriotism is separate from who the the holders of office, right? So whether or not you like the current president, whether or not you like your member of Congress, you can have faith or strongly believe in the system of government that the United States is or the ideals that we promote, and that's patriotism, which sounds an awful lot like civic nationalism because it is inclusive of everybody, mm-hmm. you know? Um, whereas nationalism, theoretically, is a is about you know, defining that group that's in or out. So I often have a hard time with the, with the phrase civic nationalism. Sure. Because 
if the point of civic nationalism is that there is not an in or an out group, then it's really more patriotism than it is nationalism. Okay. And when, so when does patriotism kind of transition into, because we, we, we all think of nationalism generally in negative terms. Mm-hmm. When, when can patriotism, I guess, what's, what, how would you separate patriotism from nationalism then? Yeah, good question. <laughs> this is why we don't use patriotism often in political science. Right. Because it, it's more of it's a social tough. term than it is um, a political term. Um, but yeah, I would say the difference primarily is the uh, is that nationalism tends to also invest as much faith and fervor in the leaders as it does the system. Okay. Um, and patriotism is about the system, theoretically speaking. Okay. Because <laughs> so- we've also seen people claim patriotism that really is more nationalism, that is about... Um, you know, promoting a particular group having the power within the system. Um, you know, white nationalism is a great example of that sure. in the United States, obviously, that what they're promoting is not actually faith in the system of government, but faith in certain people having power. Mm-hmm. And that is different than the patriotism associated with the system. Right. Pride in the Constitution. Pride in, the Constitution. Pride in our institutions. Okay. Things like that. Exactly. Faith in the ability of democracy to, you know, get us through the worst of times kind mm-hmm. of thing. Okay. So then if we move on a little bit from nationalism to the second part, which talks about ethnic violence, mm-hmm. which hits right home with, with <laughs> what, what, I do. You, what you studied or what you still study, um, what should students know about ethnic violence? Before we get in this, are there misconceptions or things that people generally think of that generally are, are not correct or not entirely correct when they think of ethnic violence? Um, so yes and no, right? Like uh, a lot of people, there are different ways and different forms of ethnic violence. Um, There's a debate in political science, as there always is, over (laughs) whether it's actually a good category, whether ethnic violence is its own category, um, and specifically ethnic war. Because a lot of people will say, well, you know, when you look at any example of ethnic war, you can always point to other causal factors that may or may not be more important. You could say that, you know, the the struggle wasn't about ethnicity, it was about power. It wasn't about ethnicity, it was about, um, you know, access to economic resources, access to, um, you know, any natural resources, access to Mm -hmm. jobs, those sorts of things. Um, And certainly that is the case oftentimes. Um, But what's important and what I argue and many other people argue about ethnic violence is that Because the identifier of opposing groups is something that's intrinsic, you know, going back to our conversation about identity earlier, it's something that we both cling to and we are identified by and we identify with, you know, those Mm -hmm. those nationalisms and those identities so that when my group is singled out, even if it's singled out economically, I feel that as an affront to me and my identity. And because those things can't be stripped, you're, even after conflict, you're dealing with, um, you can't get rid of the in and out groups, okay. right? So in ethnic civil war, which is primarily what I look at, when war is over, those ethnicities still exist. Your opposing sides are still very clearly defined. So how do you move forward and try and build relationships between combatants when I can very easily tell whether you are part of my group or not? Mm-hmm. You know. So then, so then, going just to, yeah. to make sure that we're clear, <laughs> um, what what makes violence ethnic, ethnic violence? Right. What makes it as opposed ethnic. to just. Another kind Another of kind war. Of war. Yeah. So the primary thing that makes it ethnic violence is when people are targeted based on their ethnic identity. So, um, again, in Northern Ireland, oftentimes people will call that a religious war because mm-hmm. most people who identify as Irish are Catholic 
and most people who identify as British are Protestant. But the primary identifier in that conflict was your dis- your descent, mm-hmm. was being either Irish or British. And that was uh, often shown in who was targeted and why. Um, and so okay. when we talk about ethnic violence, we're, we are always talking about violence in which targets are determined based on their ethnic identity. And that doesn't mean that there can't be inter-ethnic violence or intra-ethnic violence. So, right. so you know, uh, Irish people in Northern Ireland killed other Irish people in Northern Ireland, but they tended to do that for reasons of collusion with the British. They, you know, oftentimes police officers in particular were targeted. Um, and if you were of an Irish Catholic descent, you might get targeted because you're working with the enemy because the police are all British Protestants and we don't trust them. And so it's the identity of, it's your ethnic identity that is your primary identifier in either side and often the reason that you are targeted for violence. Okay, so who's bad and who's good is determined by ethnicity. Yes. Okay. So then in in your dissertation, mm-hmm. you look at both Northern Ireland and Kenya. Mm-hmm. And I, this kind of backtracks a little bit. Yes. <laughs> um, but when thinking about the nationalisms at play there, mm-hmm. how, how are they similar or different from each other? So um, this is really an important concept that often gets lost in ethnic conflict because... Uh, Within political science, we would definitely term both as ethnic conflicts. Mm -hmm. Um, The difference is that I would not necessarily identify um, ethnic nationalism in Kenya the same way that we can identify it in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, clearly there are ethnic groups that, um, you know, they have the same common identity, they have the same common language and history, and, and they seek that political control. In Kenya... There is a what we might call tribalism, which is slightly different in that there's not necessarily a desire to have political control over a certain territory, but rather the ability to pursue language and culture and history and tradition unimpeded. Um, and that that does not necessarily translate into a desire to have political control in a territory. Um, so many of the ethnic groups that exist in Kenya, um, there are somewhere on the order of, there's at least 26, but there might be up to 70, depending on how you're counting the ethnic groups that exist oh, in wow. this place. Um, they aren't necessarily looking for political independence or control over a specific territory. They're just looking to, you know, be given the opportunity to express their culture and live and survive well. And so a lot of, while there was still ethnic conflict because they're uh, in the conflict specifically that I studied, which was after their 2007 election in which there was a, a extreme amount of ethnic violence, people were still targeted based on their ethnic identities, okay. but they weren't necessarily um, looking for political control. It's a slightly different Concept. Right, right. So in in Northern Ireland, um, I guess can you can you talk a little bit about the goals of each side and yeah. how that's different from the the tribalism? Yes, they want political power, but it's different from say like Scotland or the Basques in yes, in exactly. Spain. Yeah. So I mean, that's you know, once again, nationalism is hard to define and <laughs> and different depending on where you're looking at it. Sure. So in Northern Ireland, again, the two main sides are the people who would consider themselves Irish, they're primarily Catholic, um, and they want reunification with the Republic of Ireland. So Ireland is is a small island, and a very small chunk of it has been cordoned off and called Northern Ireland, and it is a part of the United Kingdom. And they want, though the Irish in Northern Ireland want to be reunited with the Republic of Ireland and be one island to, or one nation together. The people who would be considered British, of British descent, and are mostly Protestant, <clears throat> want to remain a part of the United Kingdom because their history comes from emigrating from those islands and they want to remain a part of the United Kingdom. Nationalism in Scotland, which is just across the pond, as they say, <laughs> um, is slightly different because in Scotland, 
the Scottish nationalists seek to have independent control over their territory. So they don't want to remain a part of the United Kingdom, nor do they want to join any other country. They want to be their own independent country. Um, you know, this is similar to the, the Basques in Spain, mm-hmm. um, which is a super interesting case because Basque country spans the south of France and the north of Spain. Um, And the relationships between the French Basques and the French government and the Spanish Basque and the Spanish government is incredibly different. Um, It's far more adversarial on the Spanish side than it is on the French side. And part of that has to do with the French's laissez-faire attitude toward, you know, we'll leave you alone, you do your thing, and we won't bother you. And the French Basque are like, great, that works for us. Um, and Spain has a lot more vested interest in controlling what happens in the Spanish Basque country um, politically. But so, you know, that kind of nationalism that exists in uh, in Western Europe in those specific places is very different from the tribalism that I'm exploring in Kenya, where, again, there's not a... They are not seeking to have control of either an independent piece of what is now Kenya to make it, you know, Maasai country. They're not looking for that. They're just looking for the ability to have some control over their culture and have the same sort of economic opportunities and fairness as other people in the, in the country. So it's a slightly different goal. Okay. And so, I mean, as the Kenyan government, attempted to like impose a universal culture and language and things on on these tribes or so kenya suffers from what a lot of other african and south american countries suffer from which is the history of colonialism sure um so they were a british colony um and they're so there's a history of enforcing the English language um, in Kenya. It is one of the official languages of Kenya, but as is Swahili, which is sort of a uh, conglomeration of a lot of native, uh, what are called Bantu languages. Okay. So um, the Bantu languages are all very similar. They sound a lot alike, but they have slightly different dialects, and Swahili is sort of the most common form that most people speak in Kenya. Um so, and that is a, across different ethnic groups, um, but ethnic groups are able to maintain their own language okay. in Kenya. It's not, it is not enforced, and I cannot speak with authority on whether or not those were banned under English colonialism. I'm not sure. It, okay. Irish was banned in Ireland under mm-hmm. English colonialism, that I am sure of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, so um, in Kenya, so the government has not... Um, the, the current government, which they became independent in the 1960s, I want to say 1964, but I'm not 100% on that, um, they sort of just replaced the British, the people uh, in the British colonial government with native Kenyans and essentially continued to run the state the same way they had under British colonialism. And so one of the problems with that was that under British colonialism, they had determined that each tribal group or ethnic group in Kenya had sort of special uh, abilities. So certain groups Hmm. were considered the best for providing security, and certain groups were considered the best for being herders, and certain groups were considered the best agriculturalist, and they were forced to remain in those jobs. Um, And while those enforcements have been lifted, they have... Uh, endured because of things like how land has been distributed. And none of that was changed after colonialism. So rather, for instance, then the British government had taken a lot of land, but they would allow um, the Maasai herders to use uh, part of the land in sort of a communal fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, when the British government left, they handed over the land to the Kenyan government and said, do what you will. And rather than giving the land back to those who had traditionally used the land, the Kenyan government then just started selling it to make money for themselves. Um, And whoever had the money was who got the land. And that happened to be one particular ethnic group in Kenya. And so the history, to get to a better point for you guys, the history here is that the ethnic groups that have more political power got that power not because of, um, you know, they wanted control of the state or even that they believed in the lines that existed that created Kenya, but they just happened to have money at the right time and they had other 
ethnic uh, people who were in their ethnic group were in power at the time when the British left. And so it's created historical inequities that have just never been addressed and okay. oftentimes creates tension, especially around elections. And so that's primarily where the tension in, in Kenya comes from. Around the election. Or, it tends to manifest itself around elections. It time. manifests itself around elections because it seems like every time, yet again, this one ethnic group is getting all the power and it seems wrong somehow, but they don't know how to fix it. Okay, so... Before we get deeper into Kenya and Northern Ireland, <laughs> there are five primary ways that political scientists have attempted to explain, well, why does ethnic violence happen? Okay, mm-hmm. so we see these, these conflicts happen, but why? Like, how, how can we better understand the, the ways that these happen? And then after that, you know, we can dig back into Kenya mm-hmm. and Ireland and... and if you they know, fall and, into a category. Right, if they fall into a category or multiple categories. Mm-hmm. So as with anything before, anytime we're talking about like this theory or that theory, mm-hmm. odds are it's not going to be exclusively one theory that's going to explain everything. It's going to be mishmashes of mm-hmm. multiple theories. Absolutely. So, um, so there's a bunch of different kinds. So one uh, theory is called the cultural boundaries theory. And this theory essentially says... The more solidified you are in defining who is in the in-group and who is in the out-group, the more likely conflict is to arise. If those lines are a little looser, then you're not likely to develop as much conflict. So Kenya provides a really great example of this. Um, Before colonialism, different ethnic groups very often intermarried. You know, there, there were the Maasai, there were the Kikuyu, there were the Luo, but those people very regularly intermarried, would, you know, cross boundaries, and those, um, and so conflict theoretically would not have, a, according to the cultural bound, boundary theory, wouldn't right. arise regularly when you're regularly intermarrying and those lines are not quite as solid. Mm-hmm. But with colonialism, the British not only enforced those um, identities, but also made it illegal to cross marry. And so, so they institutionalized. So they institutionalized ethnicity in such a way that now there is no way in or out of a group. You are you're born into it, and that's that, and you are a part of that group forever. And so, with those rigid lines, the cultural boundaries theory says you're much more likely to end up in conflict because there's no way to, you know, compromise. But the the. The lines are very well drawn and very obvious. Yes. As opposed to when, like you said, before in Kenya, the lines are blurred. Yes. It's harder to distinguish what's in and what's out. Exactly. Who's in and who's out. Yeah. And it's not, there isn't quite so exclusive membership, I guess you might say. Um, So that's one theory. Um, And the, and it's helpful in some ways, right? Like when we look at Kenya, we could say, okay, yeah, I, I understand why maybe there were more. There's more conflict now than there was previously, if that's the case. Um, But the problem with the cultural boundaries theory is it doesn't really help us to explain why conflict breaks out when it does, right? So if the lines are are pretty solid in in an area for a long time, what cultural boundaries theory does not tell us is why it breaks out at a particular time. Why is there violence at a certain time? So... um, there's another sort of theory that um, essentially we can that strong political leaders mobilize identity when it's good for them, when it works for them. So mm-hmm. you know, I want to create conflict because I'm the president, and there's lots of you know we're having an, we're struggling economically, and so rather than deal with the economic struggle, I'm going to appeal to my co-ethnics, people of my ethnic group, and tell them that the real problem is the other ethnic group. And that mm-hmm. uh, so political leaders can mobilize identity when it's necessary to help them out, um, either to cover for, you know, incompetencies or any various number of reasons, right? Um, and so that's a, a pretty popular theory because it helps to explain things like Nazism in Germany. What's the What's that theory? Um, I, I just call it the mobilization theory. I think that's what it's called. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, is that the 
rational calculation? Yes, rational calculation. Okay, I'm just trying to... I remember. call it mobilization in my right. mind. I don't... Right, and I'm just trying to relate it back to the terms the yes. textbook uses. Yeah. Okay. And so sort of related to rational choice theory also is just this idea that when it work, you know, we make these calculations of like when it is worth it for us to enter into conflict or not. Mm -hmm. And so things like, you know, yes, leaders can mobilize uh, ethnicity when it's good for them, but they tend to do so when they look at the situation and think like, oh, maybe, you know, there might be an uprising because the economy is so bad. So let me invoke ethnicity to prevent them rising up against me and we'll make them fight against each other and I won't sure. be in trouble, you know, divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that happens at all levels, right? That ra this sort of the rational choice theory is we look at our options and we say whether or not we think conflict is going to help us in the long run mm -hmm. um, and make that choice to enter conflict. Um, the downside of sort of rational choice theories in general is that you can always be accused of uh, fitting the curve, you know, or you can always come up with a rational reason why we entered into war after the fact. It's right. very hard to a priori or before conflict happens say, oh, here's the rational calculation that is going to lead to war, you know. And so it's hard to justify often the rational choice theories because somebody can always tell you, well, you just you just decided that and created the calculus after you knew what the answer was. Right. And so. anything, I mean, in, that applies to anything <laughs> as far as, you know, I mean, I think of, of something as simple as, like, football this weekend. If you try to pick all the games mm -hmm. and then after the fact go back and look at them, mm -hmm. you say, oh, I should have known that or this is why that happened. But exactly. before, there's no way you would have known. Or a financial crisis like 2008, mm -hmm. everybody went back after the fact and said, oh, there were all of these things in the mortgages and on mm -hmm. Wall Street that we should have known about. But it wasn't obvious. Yeah. And it's Monday morning quarterbacking for right. ethnic civil war. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Well, it's higher stakes. Higher very, stakes. very high stakes. <laughs> <laughs> much, much higher stakes than a football game. Yes, no, but much easier to understand. Um, and so, sort of the last group of theories about, like, why ethnic conflict arises, they fit this, uh, what we call social psychological theories, right? That, um, and it's kind of dependent on two variables, how ethnicity is constructed and how your ethnic group sort of compares to other groups, right? So, um, it... Basically, like, it asks first, is there a clear distinction? Again, we're looking, like, how, how strong are the lines in ethnic groups? Is it easy to tell the difference between an ethnic group? Um, and the easier it is to tell between ethnic groups, and the easier it is to compare across ethnic groups who has what. Um, and so if you feel that your ethnic group is, you know, not doing as well as another ethnic group, then you develop a frustration with the other group, and that leads to conflict, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of comparative uh, deprivation is another way to look at right. it. Right, collective resentment. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if I have less than you, I want more, and I can see that your ethnic group is doing better than mine, so that's what's going to lead to war. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's sort of, those are sort of the main ideas around like why conflict arises in general, but specifically why ethnic conflict. Yeah. So there's there's a not so obvious distinction between like rational choice mm -hmm. and material interest. Mm -hmm. They're similar, but how how do how are they different in in the ways that they so they look at things. Yeah, they're slightly different in that in the material interest sort of the social psychological thing, just the uh the concept that I can look and see that you have more than me is enough to cause conflict. Mm -hmm. Rational choice theory argues that you are constantly so weighing the costs and benefits of any action, right? So it's basically saying, I see that you ha your group has more than mine, but I can also see that I might lose a lot if I enter into conflict with you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I might choose not to enter into conflict, even if it's clear to me that you have more than I have. Mm -hmm. um, but if I have so little that I, you know, my group is barely surviving, that, you know, we cannot provide for ourselves, then 
that calculation changes so that I have a lot to gain by possibly going into conflict and, you know, and winning and much less to lose because if I lose, I already have nothing. What more can you take mm-hmm. from me? Um, so that rational choice theory is that calculation that's constantly happening of weighing the costs and benefits mm-hmm. as opposed to this social psychological just the concept of you having more than me is enough for me to enter into conflict mm-hmm. because it's not fair. Well, and the, the rational choice also can include things that aren't material. Absolutely. Yeah, so like you might, you might it might be in your material interest to enter into a conflict, mm-hmm. but like the social standing of you or your group mm-hmm. could fall because, hey, you're committing atrocities and, you know, exactly. engaging in genocide or ethnic conflict of some kind, mm-hmm. people aren't going to like you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or, you know, alternatively, like, I might be able to handle suffering from, you know, uh, relative deprivation of material things, but when you make it illegal for me to practice my religion, mm-hmm. that might be enough of a calculation for me to say I'm going to enter into conflict. Okay. So that really gets yeah. at the difference between purely material yes. versus the rational choice. Yes. Okay. And then, so then how do these different theories apply to the two cases you're most familiar with? Yeah. So in, so Northern Ireland is a great example of sort of uh, this social psychological calculation, maybe plus a little rational choice theory thrown in there. Okay. Um, so in Northern Ireland, the conflict primarily re- was the result of a long history of deprivation for the Irish Catholic community. So they were not allowed to have certain kinds of jobs. They were not allowed to own property. They were not allowed to you know, live in certain areas, do certain things, which had you know all all kinds of social effects um, that were problematic. There were also there were also political calculations. They that only uh, people who owned property were allowed to vote. But if people if Irish Catholics were being prevented from owning property in certain areas, then they were being prevented from you know participating in the political system. There were also accusations of gerrymandering in certain areas. So there was this sort of long calculation of political deprivation, um, material deprivation. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can also look at, um, you know, sort of going back to the cultural boundaries theory of the lines of, the ethnic lines were drawn very solidly um, in Northern Ireland at the time, though they may not have been visible to people outside of Northern Ireland. You tend to look at the group and go, you're all white Christians. I don't really understand um, that the distinctions were different enough and the boundaries strong enough in Northern Ireland to make it very clear who the in-group and who the out-group was and who was being affected by these policies um, that were developing. And then sort of you, one might argue as a rational choice um, theorist that there was also a worldwide political movement of civil rights at the time. So, you know, the the outbreak of the conflict in Northern Ireland is often tied to a particular event that happened in 1969 that was the result of a civil rights march that was uh, modeled on what was happening in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s. So, you know, a rational choice theorist might also say, like, that the Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland saw an an opportunity or a political moment in which they would be able to gain the support of other civil rights movements that were happening around the world and that people were promoting, that maybe that would be enough for them to get over the line and get the political accommodations that they wanted. Okay. And sorry. No, 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 you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of like how we could easily bring some of these theories into the calculus of what happened in Northern Ireland, or at mm-hmm. least the outbreak of violence there. Right. Um, in Kenya, it's a very different situation for a bunch of different reasons, um, but one of the, the primary differences is we can see a very clear 
a sort of outbreak of violence and a very quick end to that violence in the particular incident that I'm looking at, though we can easily look at a history of violence in, in Kenya um, So as is it well. more sporadic in that More way? sporadic, I would say. It tends to be associated with um, elections, and this is where we could maybe appeal to uh, that idea of mobilizing ethnicity. Okay. So very frequently, especially in the elections... Um, in 1992, 1997, and subsequent um, elections since then, there is ample evidence that uh, political leaders have tried to mobilize ethnicity to get people to vote for them. Um, And so people who are ethnic Kikuyu, which is the dominant ethnic group, though they are not a majority, there is no majority ethnic group in Kenya, Dominant in... Dominant in that they have the most political power. And they are the largest minority group, but by a very small margin. Okay. Um, Very small ethnic (laughs) groups there. Like I said, there's like up to 70 if you count them. (laughs) So so the Kikuyu are often villainized by uh, non-Kikuyu people who are running for office um, and other... Uh, and oftentimes other ethnic groups will be villainized by the Kikuyu. And this is very clear and obvious, especially in the run-up to the particular uh, incident of violence that I look at at the end of the 2007 elections, where we can see evidence of you know people going into villages and saying, the reason that you are having problems is because of the Kikuyu, and then alternatively going into Kikuyu neighborhoods and saying, like, oh, the Luo are going to come and steal your land if they win. So we can easily see the uh, mobilization Mm -hmm. of ethnic groups there. Um, Again, we can look to the cultural boundaries theory, as we pointed out earlier, that those lines have been solidified over, um, you know, both colonialism and post-colonial political actions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it would be maybe a little more difficult to have a rational choice application to what happened in Kenya, in part because it was so quick. It was over so quickly. It was done in about two months. So it was extreme violence. Thousands of people were killed. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. And within about two months, the violence was over. So it's difficult Hmm. to understand maybe a rational choice calculation that would lead to such an immediate burst of violence and end. Um, But I'm sure somebody will make the attempt to to do it that way. <laughs> so I look at it more of a mobilization. Yeah, and the the primary cleavage with it being so if you look at it through the mobilization lens, mm-hmm. the primary cleavage is is about power. It, it yeah. Gosh, what is the primary cleavage? I guess like, it's about power. It's about power and identity. Okay. Honestly. So um because it's not as though there are promise there were promises that you know the wealthy kukuyu that owned land were going to have to forfeit their land yeah um, by the opposition but there was a promise of let's look at the unfairness and let's get rid of the unfairness okay. um, so a little bit of power mm-hmm. certainly um, but also a little bit of just like let's get some some other ethnic groups in there and get some, let's share, share the wealth a little better, yeah. I guess. But using these ethnicities against each other to, yes. to gain political power. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, is there anything else that you <laughs> would, you would want to add to our conversation before, before we end here? Well, you know, I think that the book does a pretty good job of explaining what, nationalism is um, and what ethnic conflict comes from. I think the other thing that I like about this chapter in the book um, is the discussion of different ways to end ethnic conflict that comes at the end of the chapter. Um, And that's certainly something that I focus on a lot because as much as I study ethnic civil war, I actually prefer the end (laughs) rather than the violence. Solutions are better (laughs) than the problems. Um, And I... I think it's really important if you get a chance to really look at that section and explore mm-hmm. the different ways that we talk about fixing the problem or pre- or even preventing the problem, right. um, that there are some solutions that might prevent violence from 
breaking out. So. Right. And they're going to, we're going to talk about that when we get to democracy and institutions and uh, they're going to have, you'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> and you'll be answering a question about uh, how you would design institutions in an ethnically divided society for one of your reflections. So, you know, we'll get there. Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a good part to keep in mind. This part of the chapter of the book. Absolutely. It will come, it will come back into play later. Thanks. So, all right. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Shauna Meehan for taking basically an hour out of her day <laughs> to, to talk to me here. But uh, make sure that you are listening to this. You're taking lots of notes, keeping up on the reading. And if things were not clear or there was something you didn't understand, please comment in the discussion section below this podcast on Canvas. And be sure to answer your students' questions if you think you know. You're not getting graded on it. Put the ideas out there and get the discussion going and deepen your understanding of this. You know, that's the whole point that you're here. So until next time, have a good one. Mm-hmm.